Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. VPR is staffed by the Master of Public Policy students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Welcome to Academical. In this episode, we are joined by Robert Zulo, the editor-in-chief of the Virginia Mercury. He was kind enough to host myself, as well as VPR's executive editor, James Lucky, and associate editor, Anna Higgins. Our conversation touches on the Virginia Mercury's mission, goals, their approach to reporting, and the state of journalism more broadly. Enjoy. Uh, my name is Robert Zulo. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Virginia Mercury, a new nonprofit news site covering state government and policy here in Richmond. So we wanted to start uh, asking uh, about your business model. So you are a new publication. Uh, you've only launched in the last few months, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so what do you see as the key differences between the model that you've chosen, the nonprofit journalism model, and the for-profit journalism model? So you can compare yourself to, say, the Richmond Times Dispatch. Uh, so, yeah, we, we don't really have a business model per se, and that we're not trying to, um, at least at this point, collect revenue from readers. Um, our goal is to be donor supported, um, uh, big donors, small donors, and everyone in between. Um, and that's something we're hoping to pivot to very soon here in the next few months. We were. Uh, we are among a group of sites that were started by the Hope, uh, an initiative of the Hopewell Fund, which is a DC nonprofit. <clears throat> and the way I describe that is we got seed money basically to launch, you know, buy equipment, hire people, uh, and kind of get off the ground. But the goal is to be uh, kind of broaden our donor base and, uh, you know, have. Um, everyone from somebody who wants to give us a few bucks a month to you know large foundations that kind of support our overall mission but we're a part of a network of sites in other states so there will be some national fundraising that supports us also understood and I also something that I've noticed from looking at the bios of yourself and your reporters is that all of you came from for-profit newspapers uh, could you talk a little bit about how your reporting styles or your newsroom style might be different on the nonprofit model if it's different at all? Well, the goal is for it not to be different. Um, I spent 13 years at newspapers. My first newspaper was, uh, my first full-time newspaper was a, a small weekly in uh, northern New Jersey. Uh, we were a, a chain of family-owned papers, and I think our circulation was like 1,500. <clears throat> and then I uh, spent five years at a, a small pair of dailies in South Louisiana. And then I came back to Richmond for the first time uh, for my first job at the Times-Dispatch. Uh, left after about a year and a half for a job at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. I was there for three years and then came back to the um, Times-Dispatch in 2016. <clears throat> and, you know, along that whole trip, I've seen kind of the decline of the, the newspaper business, layoffs and furloughs and pay cuts and um, you know, the comparison in staffing at the Times-Dispatch from when I first got there in 2012 to when I came back in, in 2016 was just, you know, it was really um, uh, remarkable and it, and it got smaller every year that I, that I worked there after that. Uh, so 
our goal really is to answer your question is is to to kind of keep the same uh, same reporting techniques and um, journalistic standards uh, that we had at those papers. We just the difference is we get to decide what we want to do. Um, there isn't a bigger bureaucracy than the four of us in that room over there. And we have arguments all the time about what's important, what we should cover, what we shouldn't cover, how we should do it. Um, because it's a it's a learning experience every day when you're only four people and you have a, a potential coverage area as, as immense as the state of Virginia and, you know, Virginia government and policy. So it's every day is a exercise trying to figure out where our niche is, what makes sense for us to do. But luckily I have a really good team of people. They all are experienced and they all are on board with the idea of trying to do things in a little bit different way that will help us stand out. So this is a nice segue to a question I had about, I guess, uh, a similar model that operates on a national level at like, The Intercept, right? They got funding from their uh, billionaire um, backer, Pierre Omidar, the founder of eBay, and they've since switched to um, like public donations, um, similar to like an NPR, but it's not really clear if they're still getting money from their original backers. Are you, is the plan to, once you kind of establish yourselves in time, to get away from these venture funds that are the, the seed funders? I don't know that, um, so I should, I, I probably should note that I am not like a, I'm an employee of a larger organization. Okay. So right now, I, you know, we work for the Hopewell Fund doing business in Virginia as the Virginia Mercury. And we report to the newsroom, which is a, this network of sites, that, and uh, the head office is in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And they are um, figuring this stuff out as we go, <laughs> I think is the best way to put it. Got it. Um, you know, the initially... Initially, when I was hired, the idea was that we would kind of become our own Virginia 501c3, and we'd have a board of directors, and you know we'd be totally Virginia-based. And I think, I think that might be changing, but I, you know, I, I can't really share more details than that at this point because we're so new. It's, I mean, we just launched in July. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, it's it's a similar story to the Intercept, is where you're trying to kind of figure this out as you go along, and you know the. I can say all day, as, and I, as I have said to many people, we went through a little bit of an issue with uh, Virginia Public Access Project and being included in their news clips. Are we an advocacy organization? Are we really a journalistic organization? You know, who are their funders? You know, they're not, the Hopewell Fund doesn't say who's giving money for this project. So I, I've run into all those issues in our uh, past six, in the past six months, and it's, you know, they're not easy to sort through. I mean, as a journalist, you want to be as transparent as possible, but sometimes the money comes with, well, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be associated, or I don't want to, uh, you know, that's the, that's the stipulation. Like, but I can say 100% that we make all our own decisions. We have total editorial independence, and you know, the hope is just that people can see for themselves what we do and judge whether they think it's, uh, you know, meets the standards of objective journalism. And I think. You know, for the most part, that's been the case. So since you are established as a 501c, right, how does that affect the mission of the, the publication? Uh, what is the it really goal? Doesn't, is it just to be a journalistic institution? Yeah, it doesn't, change, it doesn't change much, except we have to be careful about, um, to be very careful about covering elections and races and, and campaigns. 
from a not from a news standpoint. You know, so and so was here and said this, and you know, Corey Stewart said this today, and he said you know made this campaign appearance and he held up a roll of toilet paper. I mean, that's that's not tricky. I mean, that's the stuff we've all done our whole careers. But in for me as an editor, in you know, we have to be very careful about taking op eds and support. You know, that could be seen as you know favoring one candidate or one party or another because that's kind of the the golden rule of the five hundred one c three is you can't. Um, you can't advocate for one, you know, political party or a candidate or anything like that. So that's been a little bit new territory for me. <clears throat> Whereas a newspaper, you just kind of had to worry about: are you giving equal time? Are you being fair? You know, if if X candidate gets to write an op-ed, does the other candidate get to write his own op-ed? Uh, so that's been a little bit different. But the journalistic part has been very, you know, very easy. It's just move. It's just where I work and <laughs> you know who pays me now. Um, but the uh, all the other stuff that's come with it has been, you know, has been the uh, kind of the new territory. I'm actually pretty curious about uh, because in Ben we have a class about NGOs and nonprofit management, and um, a Hopewell Fund is it associated with the New Venture Fund? Yes. Yes. Big, okay. I'm I'm just asking <laughs> because I was in an organization this summer that was also supported by the New Venture Fund, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the support that you get from the Hopewell Fund because a lot of in and nonprofits and 501c3s will often have, you know, like people in charge of operations and HR and funding and all these things. And you're such a small team, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the support, the administrative support that. Hope no, yeah, that's a that's a you. that's a good question. Basically, and I, I mean, I report to somebody else, and then they kind of report to Hopewell. So, I'm not too involved except you know I do our expend Hopewell basically handles all of our um, HR functions so benefits salaries 401k um, you know expense reporting time management software um, you know vacation and stuff like that um, but beyond that I really couldn't tell you what New Venture does what Hopewell does and uh, um, <laughs> to be honest, when we launched, it was kind of a, okay, do I, you know, who do I call about this problem? Do I call New Venture? Do I call Hopewell? And it, it was a little bit of a circular uh, thing for a minute, but I don't want to talk too much about that. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> Just to jump back a little bit, uh, what effects have you seen on reporting and journalism uh, with the acquisitions of very large uh, papers like the Washington Post and the Denver Post, uh, you know, by the likes of Jeff Bezos and like these large hedge funds. We saw it again with like the LA Times. How has that affected reporting and um, how can your your paper, the Virginia Mercury, or online publication, I should say, succeed in that landscape? Well, it can be good and bad. I mean, it all depends on what the intentions of the, you know, the owner are. Uh, you know, I think that uh, Jeff Bezos' acquisition of the Post is kind of for people who are working in newspapers at the time, and I was one of them. I mean, he showed you a model for how to how to do something different besides just come in and lay everybody off. Um, he actually invested in the paper. He hired, you know, I think I don't know what the numbers are, but I, I remember at one point seeing that they were hiring like 130 reporters, which was um, great to see and. It's a little bit different for a, a paper that has a national brand like that, where you can you can have digital advertising and you have subscription at a scale that can support the newsroom. So for a local or a regional paper, 
you know, I've heard that, oh, well, that model won't work, but I don't know that anyone's ever tried it either. So <clears throat> the whole essential problem of the newspaper is you're tethered to your, uh, your print edition, which produces still the vast majority of your revenue with those big display ads. Um, and at the same time, it's also a huge portion of your expense the printing press itself, the ink. delivery drivers, ink, paper. I mean, believe it or not, paper, paper is one of the single biggest, you know, expenses of the newspaper. And <clears throat> fewer people are buying the paper, fewer people are subscribing. Um, and at the same time, one of the cruel ironies of the newspaper business is more people are reading what newspapers do than ever before. I mean, they might not realize it because they're reading it. They might read it on a blog or uh, some kind of... Um, uh, an aggregation site that's like taking articles from here and there, but you know, if you think about the news as an eco, the new news as an ecosystem, right? Newspapers are still producing the vast majority I mean, of stories. I mean, what do you see on? Have you seen during the Trump administration on CNN or you know Fox or it's it's uh, the New York Times reported today, Washington Post reported today. I mean, it's still the print newsrooms that are the big um, drivers of journalism in this country. But unfortunately, <clears throat> they cost a lot of money to have a big newsroom, and you have to figure out how to pay for it. And for site like the New York Times has had success with digital subscription, and that's been enough to keep it afloat and profitable. Um, same with the Post. Um, but if you could if you could replicate that on a local level, you know maybe you could have the same kind of sustainability. But Unfortunately, these newsrooms have been so hollowed out in so many of these towns that you need to give people a reason to pay for the product. And if they're seeing, if they're not, if they're not seeing an investment in the company in the news gathering operation, then it's hard to convince them to to pony up the money. Did that answer your original question? Yeah. I don't know what. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot what your question was. Uh, we're talking about like the the effects of reporting and journalism. Um, well, yeah. So the the by the yeah, these large kind of billionaire. Uh, backers coming in and buying the publications. And the flip side to that, thank you for bringing me back on track, is that you know, in Denver, for example, you have a hedge fund, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> that's also been um, a uh, ongoing story in newspapers where they're being bought up in these big chains because they're they're still, in many cases, profitable, and there's still money to siphon out of them as long as they, you know, get rid of. The people that cost money in the, in the newsrooms, um, but at the same time, you're creating this cycle where the more people you lay off from newsrooms, the less content you produce, the less reason people have to pay for the product. Um, so, if you have, I, and I honestly, I mean, my personal opinion, I, I think more newspapers should do what the Denver Post did and kind of rebel against that kind of ownership style because these aren't just businesses I mean these are community institutions that have been around for 100 years 100 I mean I worked at <clears throat> the Post Gazette was the first newspaper published west of the Allegheny Mountains I mean those are enormous um, traditions to uh, and, and I think people it's very it's become very you know de rigueur to bash print media and bash newspapers as you know the dynasty people will miss them when they're gone 100% there's no doubt about that um, there is still, even even with the layoffs they've experienced, there's nothing in the neighborhood of even a <clears throat> even a Richmond Times Dispatch that covers the city in as much depth and uh, 
and detail. So it's it's in everyone's best interest that they find a way to survive. But I just, you know, I in the course of my career, I didn't think the problem was readers. I didn't think the problem was reporters. I thought it was newspaper company managers. Um, and unfortunately, that convinced me that I needed to try something else. <laughs> so, well, on that note, there's a, a trend, at least right now, that I've come across. Uh, and th this is just one example, but there's something called Civil Token. Uh, there's a, a podcast called Zigzag, which is hosted by two former WNYC reporters who used to do Note to Self. Um, and they're relying on Civil Token, which is uh, you know, a, a cryptocurrency on their own blockchain and they're using this that's you know they're going to allow the public to buy civil tokens to then invest in the publications that they deem worthy and even punish those that they think are doing bad reporting do you have thoughts on that or did you ever consider know, a model like that <clears throat> i know I, I i read about that but i i have to say that i've only got a very cursory understanding of how that works i mean it seemed kind of um What's the right diplomatic way to describe it? I mean, it, it didn't make sense to me how the... I, I don't understand why you go that model rather than just say, we're a news operation, we rely on you know reader support, either charge subscription or you know accept donations. I, I didn't really understand why to bring in the, the, the benefits of bringing in the, the blockchain, but yeah. Yeah, I see that it does... Uh presents some barriers to entry for most of the public. So I, I do understand that. I was wondering if you could talk about why the Virginia Mercury was begun in the first place. Where did uh, you see the void in the coverage of state politics? And how do you think the Virginia Mercury fills that void? Like I said, I can't take too much credit for, you know, like mm -hmm. I, have a, you know, I have a mortgage, and I have two kids. And there were a few of us at the Times Dispatch over the past I don't know, a year or two, who thought we should try something like this, and if we don't, someone is going to do it. <clears throat> um, someone is going to launch a new, you know, so we, the the decision we had or that we kicked around, I mean, this is all in, like, happy hours and stuff, <laughs> was, you know, should we start something that just covers Richmond? Is there more of an engaged audience on, on you know, local stuff in the city, or should we, you know, should we do state have a statewide focus and but the you know the obstacle for me going into something like that you know I can't just quit my job and you know you need health insurance you need to you need a regular paycheck and um, it was really you know serendipitous that right at the same time you know the, it was the last time well not the last time now but at the time it was the most recent round of times dispatch layoffs my wife found the listing and said, you should apply for this. <clears throat> because to be totally candid, I was looking at like, okay, I'm 38 years old. I have two kids. I need to be responsible. We're not going to just pick up and move across the country, which I've done many times, you know, for jobs. And you got the sense that you're just going from one sinking ship to another. Um, and I was thinking about, you know, changing careers. And then this came along and... <clears throat> Um, that kind of made the decision for me to answer your question is because their specific focus was we want state house coverage. Um, so that's how it came about. Um, <clears throat> is the mission to complement that the reporting from the Richmond Times Dispatch or is it to compete to break the same stories? Yes and no. I mean, it's a 
we would like to ourselves to be seen, and, and we have a we have a content sharing agreement right now with NBC Twelve. I've been trying to work on you know as we go along, um, kind of seeding our content into you know other publications that they can have. It's for you know they can have it for free. We see ourselves as kind of a resource in that respect, but we're going to compete in in a certain respect. Um, we are not going to be, it's not necessarily like the traditional media competition where we all go to the same event and we all try to write about it and get it up and publish it as quickly as possible. Um, <clears throat> we are going to try to tell the story a little bit differently. We're going to try to have add a little bit more context and more explanation than you might have in your, you know, your average daily paper story. At least that's what we aspire to do. And, you know, Sometimes we do it. <laughs> We're still learning. We're still trying to, you know, figure out the best way for us to go about, you know, our business. Um, I know the Denver Post and some of their work coordinated with different local news groups, um, not just in the content, but actually the investigation side of it. Have you done any, has the Virginia Mercury done any coordination with like the Richmond Times-Dispatch or other local news on certain aspects of uh, your work? Not yet. Um, it would be something we would be, you know, we would be open to and we'd like to do. Um, it just hasn't happened quite yet. Um, you know, honestly, with the Times-Dispatch, the three of us left the Times-Dispatch to start this, so I, I kind of wanted to wait for the, the dust to settle a little bit yeah. um, to kind of approach them uh, about something like that. But we still know all the people there. They know all, they know us. Michelle came from the, Virgi the Virginian pilot. Um, I wanted us to kind of have stand on our own for a few months and kind of put out a body of work that would give people a reason to say, okay, now we know what they're about, you know, we can work with them and, you know, this is the kind of value they can add. So that'll probably be, you know, in the next six months or so, we'll look to do more stuff like that. Well, candidly, we have heard from state legis or some state legislators that your name is out there and people do respect the work you're doing. Well, yeah, some of them do, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, with, you, know, you know what they say about journalism is long hours and low pay, but on the other hand, everyone hates you. So, <laughs> so you don't, I mean, you don't do this to be, to be liked, but we do want to be, we do want to be read and we, we would like our uh, stories to be relevant and, uh, you know, talked about. So you did mention your staff again. What is it like covering the state house? I mean, you are... We're about to find out tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> what is it like covering the General Assembly like with only three reporters and yourself on the team? But you, that is really not that small compared to like you know the um, the Times Dispatch. Most papers had one person there in the most recent years. So the Roanoke Times had a person. The Virginia Pilot had one person. The Daily Press would send one person. The Roanoke, I don't know if the Roanoke Times is, is going to fill that job and send someone up here again this year after they, they lost their last one. Um, I guess we'll see. Uh, the Times-Dispatch had, they had tried a new strategy, which was really good um, for the, the, the last two years that I was there where they were sending the beat reporters down to the session every day to cover topics of, you know, like the healthcare reporter um, would be covering health policy debates and when I was the environment and energy reporter there I was you know I was there covering utility regulation and things like that and that really gave them a uh, 
you know, a, a, a presence that really couldn't be matched by anybody, not even, you know, VCU and their capital news service. They had like 20 students um, <clears throat> because you had people who did this every day, covered these subjects every day as part of their job. And now they were covering the, the twists and turns of the legislative debate. But on the other hand, it took the Times Dispatch years <laughs> to figure out that that was a good way to do things. Um, and often they might only have three people. You know, the, the, the so-called politics team would be the only ones covering the session, and it was just overwhelming. You know, it's like drinking through a fire hose. you got 46 days, and who knows how many, you know, 1,500 bills might be filed. And, you know, you got to quickly do a lot of triage to figure out, you know, what's the most important story of the day. And when you do it that way, that leaves a lot of, um, that leaves a lot of stuff uncovered. So what, what we've kind of said we're going to do is we're not going to be like kids playing soccer. We're not going to chase big story every day that everyone else is going to report we're going to kind of pluck out oh here's in this committee we're for you know you know we're for a lawmaker you know a panel of lawmakers killed the minimum wage again for the a minimum wage increase for the hundredth time you know and it, kind of pull out those stories um things that affect a lot of people but don't get a lot of fanfare and coverage you kind of hinted at this you know there's a, a lack of um time and attention given to things and you know that kind of leaves a void part of the curriculum at batten we you know we learn about the role of lobbyists in policy making uh, and how in many instances they serve as advocates and subject matter experts uh, for state legislators especially in states where there's part-time legislatures how have you how have your interactions been with lobbyists do you see them in this advocate light I mean, personally, I still remain skeptical at times that, you know, that's always some, the I case that good, they are oh, I have good advocates. But, you know, what, is, what has your experience been? Well, I, and I'm not, like, I don't want to misrepresent that I'm, like, some old hand at the General Assembly. I mean, I've only been, um, this will be my third session. Um, so someone like, you know, Jeff Shapiro or Michael Martz at the Times Dispatch have gone through, you know, more than they can remember, probably. Um, but I think that that also can lead to a, uh, you know, when you've, seen this, when you've seen the same bills come up and the same bills die every year, that leads to this, like, kind of a dismissive, ad, like, we're not going to waste time on that, that's not going anywhere. And you get kind of in the inside baseball of the General Assembly, you know, we had a story today on the certificate of public need process for, you know, uh, for medical facilities. So everyone up the hill over there knows what that is and knows the ins and outs and is tired of the debate. and. Um, but I don't think we wanted to be a little bit different and say, well, no, everyone doesn't know what this is. Let's explain what it is and tell people, you know, why they keep arguing about this every year and why it elicits eye rolls and legislative committees. <clears throat> but to get back to your question, I mean, I've sat in committee <laughs> committee rooms watching uh, lobbyists, you know, text lawmakers as they're debating uh, as they're debating bills. I've, uh, you know, one who didn't know I was a reporter. I sat down next to her and she kind of had me. She said, do you want me to tell you how your bill is going to go? I said, I actually don't have a bill, but uh, I figure anything that's going to make your clients spend any money, you'll be opposed to, and they'll probably vote it down. So <laughs> I think that Virginia is uniquely, um, because of the part-time legislature, because the session is short, um, even a long session is you know fairly short for some of the issues that they're weighing. I mean, one of the things that I specialized in when I was at the TD is utility regulation, and that is a place that 100% historically lawmakers have relied on the utility companies to tell them 
you know, the ins and outs, and we all know how that has gone. I mean, you've seen Dominion come back year after year and get bills that benefit their bottom line at the expense of their uh, rate payers. And, you know, it's finally, <laughs> this, this tide is finally starting to turn, but it's taken some really, um, some really agree, what a lot of people would say are really egregious abuses to, uh, to generate that kind of backlash. Um, it's, uh, I guess, <clears throat> I mean, lobbyists, of course, will tell you that they're advocates. They are paid advocates. They are there to do a job. Um, but, yeah, they, they, uh, they, they exert a lot of influence on there. I mean, VPAP had a really great, um, had a really great piece the other day on new lobbying registrations and who they work for. And so the big, the big new ones this year will be uh, cannabis and casinos. So weed and gambling will be, uh, so, which is interesting because those aren't the usual suspects down there. So it should be fun. <clears throat> Do you ever struggle with um, getting lobbyists on the record or getting kind of the lobbying that goes on behind bills and legislation on the record? Do you oh. ever struggle with like, <laughs> getting that through in your stories? Everyone or? struggles with that. Yeah. Um, Lobbyists very very rarely want to be on the record. Um, they, uh, you know, their goal is really not to be. Uh, their goal is not to get. Their, they're not there to get their names and stories. I mean, they're there to achieve outcomes. They're there to sway lawmakers who might be on the fence, and um, <clears throat> you know, they would say that their role is to merely to just educate lawmakers about the pros and cons of a given a given bill. Um, so yeah, they, they were, that's what, um, I mean, that is something I would like to do. I mean, cause it's very, Virginia is very buttoned up, you know, I've worked in, let's see, three other States and there's the, the aura of the Virginia way kind of extends to, um, in some respects is extended to the press corps where there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of reluctance to impugn the motives of lawmakers and, um, which is funny to me in a state with you know virtually no campaign contribution limits and um, some uh, until very recently virtually no in the McDonald's stuff very very hardly any ethics laws with any teeth um, <clears throat> so I, I would love to get more of the uh, the back room and the hallways of the General Assembly stuff out there because I think it's something people deserve to know but it's been this kind of cloistered thing for a long time so it might be tough to tough to break through that in one year so you've mentioned uh you know some of the issues that are facing virginia what are the things that you're watching now in 2019 what are what are things that the public should be um waiting to hear about well we wanted to send out uh, there are a few things we wanted to kind of franchise so we wanted to be one of the reasons like katie o'connor is one of my first people i wanted to hire was we, we really wanted to focus on healthcare, you know, with Medicaid expansion happening this year, we wanted to kind of make that a, a peg uh, of our coverage. So we'll be, that's definitely something we'll be looking at. I don't know how much we'll get decided this year because they're kind of in the aftermath of Medicaid expansion. So <clears throat> we'll see if they do make some changes to the certificate of public need process because you have these uh, giant hospital practices that have kind of uh, absorbed doctor's practices and um, you know you're getting to the point where if you want to go get if you need a procedure or you need an x-ray or you need a test or something 
your choices are getting smaller. Um, at the same time, these outside entities are clamoring to get into Virginia and saying, we can do that x-ray for a lot less, but we have to go through the certificate of need process. And so that's one thing we'll track. We, we also want to, I was one of the only, um, if not the only, dedicated energy environment reporter in Virginia you know, covering things from a statewide perspective when I was at the Times Dispatch. So that was something else we wanted to um, we wanted to focus on. In fact, if I if I'm able to add a person in the next six months or so, that's that's definitely the job I want to fill as a full time energy and environment reporter. So we'll be covering coal ash. We'll be covering um, the regional greenhouse gas initiative legislation uh, that the uh, <clears throat> the Northam administration has backed. Uh, let's see. I just wrote this today, so let me. <laughs> I should remember. <laughs> it should all be at the, the tip of my tongue. Um, you know, renewable energy expansion. Uh, you know, the utilities have really kept a tight hold on, you know, the arrangements between private solar developers and small businesses, medium-sized businesses, large businesses, and homeowners. Um, so we there's a lot of interest in you know in whether that that door cracks open a little bit more this year. Um, We'll be looking at uh, some criminal justice stuff. I know that uh, Ned is interested in um, kind of a package of bills related to guns, uh, uh, jail medical care, uh, sentencing, and um, kind of crime and punishment stuff like solitary confinement. Uh, there's a lot of stuff um, that we'll, we do expect there to be considerable debate about around voting and elections. You know, we might you know, there might be a push. There will be a push. We'll see how far it goes for a constitutional amendment to take uh, redistricting out of the hands of the General Assembly. Um, would it go to an independent review? Yeah, an independent commission. Um, that would be a, like I said, a constitutional amendment process, and there's bipartisan support for that. But there, I think the leaders, you know, in um, at least in the the Republican leaders who you know still control the House and the Senate, you know, really feel that the legislature is the legislature's job, and they want to keep it that way. But what I've heard is they're looking at another maybe a bloodbath in, in 2019, um, and looking at losing the majority and you know being like drawn into irrele irrelevance in Virginia. So they might be willing to come to a table with a deal. Is what I've heard, but we'll see if that materializes. So it seems the focus of, of your organization is largely just state policy and politics. Yeah, and if we if we have a good local story that illustrates something larger, I mean, we haven't um, we we're, we wouldn't be opposed to that. Uh, Is the organization just too small to focus on more of the local issues? It's it's very hard to um, you know you you have kind of have to set out a mission and stick to it because you could get pulled in so many different directions. Um, you know, and we're all we're all reporters we came, came from a you know a news background so it's very hard to resist the impulse not to cover the big story but sometimes it doesn't it just doesn't make sense for us to spend time on it when it's something that people can read and will read elsewhere um, so we've tried to we've tried to add value in different ways we do a daily newsletter um, where we kind of do a clipping of stories from around the state um, and that has been very popular um, in fact, a lot of people tell me they really like the, the format it's presented in, the way it's written. It's not just a listicle of these things happened. and um, So we've, we've tried to think of ways that are smart, that don't cost us a ton of time, that we can you know, provide a service that, that brings people to us on those big stories. <clears throat> 
to, to that uh, idea about and maybe an inability to cover local stories at times uh, and how that speaks to news deserts. Uh, I know you might know a little bit more about this, James. The, the New York Times reported on um, news deserts and how it increases uh, um, wasteful spending by governments, uh, decreases accountability. Uh, how do you... How are you trying to position the Virginia Mercury to maybe combat those ill effects? I mean, I wish I could say there's something we could do, but I honestly, I, there are, um, oh, I just got an email about them the other day. There's a, uh, there is a nonprofit organization in Rappahannock County um, that might, you guys might be interested in, in talking to you on that question. Uh, they are partnering with the local news there, and they basically raise money to bankroll specific reporting projects in that community. So they started with a um, community survey, so they asked the people uh, what they wanted to see covered. They got the responses, and then they raised money to fund those specific projects, like broadband access was a big topic out there. Um, and I'll dig out the, uh, the name of the publication and give it to you guys. But those are there are all kinds of models you know, that are emerging um, one thing that one small thing that we can do is we can ampli we amplify those stories a little bit like we and when we do our clips every morning we look big and small I mean it's hard to start it's hard to work at a smaller paper than the one that I started at so <clears throat> you know I look at a lot of those sites uh, you know as we put together the clips to try to pull you know an interesting interesting thing out that we think that our readers would like to see so in, a, in that small way we can kind of boost boost local local coverage but I mean it's just not with the size of our newsroom and where we are there's just really not much you know we can do to uh, you know get those really really local stories but I agree 100% I mean I went to I've been to more uh, local government school board zoning board planning board um, I've been to more meetings than I than I care to remember should be no surprise the federal government is in shutdown mode right now. Uh, the president is set to speak tonight at 9. Uh, I assume he's going to mention something about the, the shutdown. Have you noticed it affecting Virginia policy or politics at all? Uh, not yet, except that, you know, I mean, we get the, the press releases from the Virginia delegation are all calling on the, you know, the president and Congress to end the shutdown. And, um, Obviously, Virginia is a state that is heavily dependent on, you know, federal spending. A large portion of the federal workforce lives here. Um, my mom works for the FAA, so she's furloughed right now. Um, <clears throat> it hasn't really, I mean, Northam has issued a lot of statements about it, but we'll see how it, um, you know, if it, if it uh, casts a shadow over the General Assembly session, but... You know, honestly, there's not too much they can do about it. <clears throat> In the last few minutes, uh, might as well just talk about journalism a little bit more uh, at large um, and see if you had any thoughts on, like, the 24-hour news cycle. Um, we know that one study found that younger people are more able to tell fact from fiction uh, online, and it might be attributable to their lack of exposure to cable news in the 24-hour news cycle. So how do you think journalism and the media can increase scrutiny on like correspondence and you know people who just opine for a living? Um, 
rather than giving objective facts and information. Hmm. Well, I should start with a caveat that I never took a journalism class in my life, so <laughs> you may be talking to the wrong person. But no, <laughs> um, I think when people complain, so often when I hear people complain about the media, you really have to say, well, who are you really talking about? And generally, they're talking about cable news, and they're talking about exactly what you said, the, you know, the kind of the blur, the pun, the kind of overwhelming uh, pundit programming that's on cable news. Um, and as far as, you know, younger people being able to distinguish better, I mean, anyone who's gotten the, the you know, the, you guys might be too young to remember the, the chain email was like the fake news of the day and anyone who got one of those from their aunt, like, can you believe what Obama is doing? I still get uh, forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, that doesn't really surprise me. I think that, unfortunately, as the media landscape just gets more fractured and fractured, there's going to be more sites like ours that have a niche. Um, there's going to be less of the general interest publication um, that tries to be all things to all people, from sports to business to news, um, that people are just going to have to become more you know, media savvy and more literate. And um, I think that the only way that you know, reputable news outlets can try to assist in that process is do what they've always done, which is source your work, show your work, correct errors when they're presented to you, um, and be as transparent as possible. So <clears throat> I think that, uh, I don't think that social media is a great thing all the time, although it's how we reach you know, a vast portion of our audience. I mean, uh, Is it mostly Facebook that you're using? Facebook and Twitter are two big uh, ones. We have an Instagram account, but we don't really take enough photos to you know, justify the time to, you know, uh, to constantly you know, monitor it and update it. But, you know, it, we just see them as a vehicle to, you know, to get people to read. Um, but honestly, you know, I see stuff every day and on Twitter and Facebook that I, just makes me shake my head. Uh, but it is a great, it's a great way to reach people. But I don't know if it's the greatest thing for our, you know, national discourse, so to speak. Is it possible to return to more objective reporting? Well, I think that, I think there, the, the objective reporting is everywhere, but I think what's, you know, everyone... What gets prominence? It depends what you're talking about. So in the old days of the newspaper, I mean, it, I see so much stuff. Um, I saw a debate, for example, on the, uh, the new congresswoman from Michigan who, uh, I don't know what the... Uh, language standards are in your I can, podcast. I can believe things. I, I think we know what you mean. <laughs> but yeah. We're going to impeach this. Who used, who yeah. used, a, who used a, uh, a profanity to describe the, the president, right? And of course, everyone reported on that. Yeah. Everyone was there. It was a press, it was a media, uh, I don't know if it was a media event per se, but it was an event that the media had been invited to. And so, yeah, when a congressman, congresswoman uses that kind of language to describe the president, it's going to be a story. Um, but I saw a lot of reaction on social media that, oh, this isn't a big story, and the president has done this and this and this, and he, he's vulgar too, and, um, and that why is the media paying so much time to this? And again, it depends what you mean by the media. Are they talking about it on cable news a lot? I'm sure they are, because that is, that is something that will, 
that it will generate outrage everywhere. But in the old days of the newspaper, they used to do something called layout. And layout, and the editors would determine, okay, what's our most important story? And it always wasn't the most salacious one. It was sometimes the one that, you know, the editors felt that was the most important thing that people needed to know, whether it was the sexiest or the bloodiest or the, you know, the stabbiest. I've worked at papers where if it bleeds, it leads was the ultimate, um, you know, end all and be all rule. <clears throat> but there was at least a thought process in how we present and package the information. And how we do that tells you what we think is important uh, and in what order you should read this news. <clears throat> how big a story was, how much play it got, you know, was all, uh, was all calculated and determined on the importance. So those things are kind of out the window in social media where you're seeing it however you're seeing it. And for you... That story was the most important thing the New York Times did that day because that's the one you're reading and that's the one that makes you angry. But it probably wasn't the most important thing in the minds of the New York Times editors. So it's hard to see how the genie gets put in the bottle on that. And I guess newspapers or newsrooms could do a better job of trying to explain it, but I, I you know, it's like shouting into the wind, arguing with people on Twitter. So <clears throat> it's a. Uh, I don't know. It's a brave new world. How does the Virginia Mercury reconcile that that kind of binary nature of we want to put up things of quality, but we also want to put up things that people are going to pay attention to? Well, we have, the, we have the luxury of not needing, at least for the moment, <laughs> not needing to attract, not having to live and die on how many you know, page views we get. Um, unfortunately, for a lot of newspaper websites, that's become, you know, a metric. And TV news websites are the same way. Um, they'll post, like, how many times have you gone to a local TV station or seen a tweet or a post from a social media station that looks something crazy, like, you know, uh, some salacious story only to find out it happened, you know, a thousand miles away. Uh, but they do that because... It gets eyeballs and it gets traffic, and they can that traffic means something to their digital advertisers. So that is not necessarily a service to your community. Um, but we, at least for now, have the luxury we don't have to really worry about our page views. So we can, you know, we publish anywhere from one to maybe four things a day, and of course we think all of those are important. But there, if you look at our stuff, it's not always the same. It's not the same kind of like man bites dog stuff that a lot of state and local outlets do um, and that's on purpose we want to we want to fill a certain kind of role uh, we want we want to be a policy website we want to be a politics website but we're not like the horse race politics we talk about structural you know the structure of elections and campaigns and campaign finance and things like that because that was what I think was missing from the Virginia media landscape so we want to kind of hue to that role now if we get in a position where oh, I have some somebody in a few years like your page views are down this month you got to you know you got to really you got to really crank these out then we got to start thinking differently but I don't I honestly I don't think that will ever be the case um, because that would just be that's not what we set out to do and that's if uh that's really not our model. But your model does allow you to do things like really focusing in on certificate of public need laws or scope of practice or the uh, the pipeline in Western Virginia. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's not necessarily that those things would be um, 
ignored at other news outlets. But there's kind of a you get kind of inured to the idea that uh, the, you know the CPCN they talk about the COPN they talk about that every year. Let's not you know why do we need a big explainer? You know that, that's the kind of thinking that can seep into people who do this stuff every day. Um, and we wanted to kind of be a f have a fresh look at, at stuff like that. As an undergraduate, I was a student journalist at UVA, and we struggled a lot with, especially like with the Charlottesville things happening in 2017 and all that. I only graduated in 2018, so I was around for Rolling Stone and all these things. We really struggled with the divide between news and the opinion sections and trying to, and having people understand the difference and not judge the newspaper and the value of its news content based on opinion. Could you talk a little bit about your experiences with that in the different newspapers that you've worked in? Well, again, I, and I think it's something that social media makes difficult because, you know, in the old days, um, you would turn literally to the opinion section of the paper and you knew that's where you were. And um, even in the old, on old TV broadcasts, when they were doing an edit, what they would call a TV editorial, which would be a commentator or somebody giving his opinion, it was, you know, spelled out on the bottom and it was it was so different from the regular news format that people knew what they were seeing but now you might get set a link you might open something you know and you don't you're not reading I think everyone's and this is my theory I mean this is not scientific at all but everyone's attention spans seem to have you know just decreased um, infinitely where you know I'm I don't know how much stuff I read a day uh, over a Twitter feed or something, and I might be reading snippets here, and I might, you know, I might, oh, I'll get back to that article, and I might never finish it, you know. I might have 15 tabs open on my browser. And, um, I just think everyone is scattered. So <clears throat> in that kind of context, if you see something that comes across your feed and someone says, hey, look at this, or can you believe that, you might not catch that, you know, that byline that says, you know, so-and-so is an opinion columnist or a guest columnist or, um, I mean, we've spelled it out clearly. We were commentary at the top of everything and people still miss it. So I don't know that there's a whole lot you can do. Um, <laughs> as long as it's clear, it's clearly labeled. I mean, eventually the, you know, the kind of the, the other crowdsource nature of social media, someone will point out to that person that, well, it's an opinion column or, you know. Um, it's funny that everyone has an opinion on the news, but very few people know much about it. Uh, and I, maybe that's maybe that's the news business's fault. Um, maybe they just were used accustomed to having a more. Um, I remember having a conversation with somebody who didn't know what a Dateline was. <clears throat> you know, and I, then I was like, "Well, let me research it a little bit." And it turns out, yeah, not every newsroom had the same definition of a dateline that I did, which means the reporter is in this place. That's when you see a dateline. That means that some people used it to describe where the action in the story was happening, whether or not the reporter had been there or not. So I think that, you know, the media business can always be more transparent about how it does its work. But I also think that, you know, there's a, you, you just can't avoid those kinds of things entirely. Is there anything that you're currently reading that you think other people should be reading or watching that you think other people should be watching? Oh, I wish I had something smart to say. But I, <laughs> this job is, um, you know, we do we do the newsletter every morning. Uh, I'm editing stories at night. I write my own opinion stuff, and there honestly is not a whole lot of time for. There's a um, 
you know, there, there might be a book or two by my nightstand that I read two pages of before I fall asleep. Um, but honestly, when I'm not doing this, I try to read other stuff like sports journalism and um, step away from, you know, politics and stuff like that for a little while. Because it's just so, um, you know, with this, with this administration more than anything, it's just so all-encompassing around the clock. Um, that you can just live in that world forever and <laughs> never come out, I guess. Uh, I feel like the last thing I saw that I really liked was the, um, you know, the New York Times uh, uh, series on their Washington bureau in the Trump era. What was it called? I don't think I'm familiar with this. It was on, um, I think it was on Showtime or HBO. It was a little... Oh, yeah, they had a documentary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a little documentary. And I think that kind of, those kinds of things are great, you know, to get to that question if, where you see... I mean, I know that Maggie Haberman texts and drives way too much now, you know, but, <laughs> but I think that those kinds of things are good, and I'm sure it's highly edited, and you know, but to show generally, you know, that uh, how a newsroom goes about its work, because there are a lot of people that really think it's all about, you know, taking, like, March... I mean, when I... <clears throat> when I uh, lived in Louisiana, uh, we were in South Louisiana. It was a conservative community. We were owned by the New York Times. And, I mean, there were people who thought that, you know, the offices in New York called us every day and told us how to cover, you know, a, a town of 34,000 people in South Louisiana. And it's just, you know, some people really believe that. Um, and, uh, you know, when the Times-Dispatch was bought by Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, there were assumptions on how, oh, you know, he's a liberal billionaire and they're going to totally change. It didn't change anything, really. I mean, that was one of the problems is it didn't change anything uh, in terms of, you know, investing in the paper. Um, so I forget what my original point was. No, I'm not reading anything interesting. <laughs> we have very little time to do reading for leisure, too. I also have, I mean, I have more, I have two small kids, so I have, I have a three and a half year old and a, a, a ten month old baby, so there's not a lot of free time. Yeah, yeah. Some solid Dr. Seuss reading. <laughs> yes, Cat in the Hat was read last night. <clears throat> well, uh, I think that about wraps things up, so we want to thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, well, no, thanks for thinking of us, and uh, I thought that you guys had great questions. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having Good luck us. with everything. Take care. You can read the Virginia Mercury at virginiamercury.com. You can follow VPR on Twitter at VA Policy Review and on Facebook and LinkedIn at Virginia Policy Review. If you would like to contribute to our print publication, please visit us at virginiapolicyreview.org. We will soon be accepting submissions for our spring 2019 issue. Lastly, VPR will yet again be hosting our National Journal Conference. Dates, guest speakers, and a schedule of events will be announced in the coming weeks, so stay tuned. Editing for this episode was done by yours truly. Our artwork comes courtesy of Brian Kim, and our music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Until next time, be excellent to each other.